now in the second chapter of the topics, which is Aristotle's treatise on dialectical reasoning, uh, he tells us that dialectic is useful for three things. Intellectual exercise, conversation, that's one way to translate it, and the philosophical sciences. And then he divides the third use into two. He, he writes the following. It is useful for the philosophical sciences because when we are able to raise doubts on both sides, we easily perceive the true and false in each. Moreover, it is useful for the first principles of each science. For nothing is able to be said about these first principles from the proper principles of the proposed science since they are the first of all principles. But it is necessary to speak about these from those things that are probable in each. This, however, is either proper or at least most fitting to dialectic. For since dialectic is able to examine, or you could translate that as test, it contains the way to the principles of all the sciences. Now, the truth of these assertions, I think, is clear from our own experience. Uh, most of our classes consist primarily of the continual dialectical probing, which seems necessary to make clear to ourselves not only the conclusions that we learn, but also the premises by which we learn them. And perhaps that experience should be enough for me. But in fact, for many years, I've asked myself how dialectical reasoning helps us to grasp the first principles of the philosophical sciences. And I hope that this paper will be a beginning for understanding the answer to that question. Uh, so the subject of this paper is the relation between dialectic and the first principles of the philosophical sciences. And the question that it is trying to answer is why dialectic is a road to grasping those principles. I'll argue in my paper that dialectic is such a road because dialectical reasoning about the principles leads us from confusion to distinctness in our grasp of the subject term of those principles. My paper falls into three parts in the first I take up what dialectical reasoning is, showing how it differs from demonstration. In the second part, I will discuss the nature and properties of the first principles of the demonstrative sciences. And in the third, I will try to explain how a dialectical consideration of a first principle makes that first principle known to us. Now, dialectic is a word. It's a word with many meanings in philosophy. But I only want to look at the ways in which Aristotle uses the word in the topics. There, it principally names a faculty for making a dialectical syllogism. In both the prior analytics and the topics, Aristotle defines the dialectical syllogism by contrasting it to the demonstrative one. 
As we learn in the posterior analytics, the demonstrative syllogism is reasoning that begins from premises that are true and primary and that yields a conclusion that's known with certainty. Propositions of Euclid are the kinds of thing, a kind of things that Aristotle had in mind, I think, when he defined demonstration in that way. Euclid begins his science by laying out definitions, postulates, and common notions, which he assumes that we know with certainty. And in the propositions that follow, he reasons to conclusions that necessarily follow from these. Now, in contrast, the dialectical syllogism does not take for premises what is true and primary, but rather what is probable. Now, this does not mean that the dialectical premises are false, necessarily. It means instead the dialectic does not assume that its premises are known with certainty. What it does assume is that the premises are probable, that is, generally accepted either by all or most men or by the wise. Examples of premises probable in this way are Friends show each other signs of affection, and love and hate dwell in the same part of the soul. These statements garnered the, garner the qualified assent of most men because they fit with the very ways in which we talk about their terms. We talk about love and hate as opposites, qualities that cannot be present in the soul at the same time. And if they can't be present together, it seems that would be because they somehow inhabit the same part of the soul. When love enters, hate is driven out. And so the dialectical syllogism begins from premises that are not certain, but only probable. And they're, we, they're probable because they fit the ways that men talk about their terms. So because the demonstration begins with premises that are true and certain, one demonstrative argument by itself is capable of being fully convincing to the learner. But because the dialectical syllogism begins from premises that are merely probable, it doesn't produce much certainty by itself about its conclusion. In order to increase the certainty of the conclusion, the dialectician will offer as many arguments as possible in support of it. And so it is a feature of dialectic that it offers many arguments through many middle terms in order to produce as much conviction as it can about its conclusion. I, I bring this up because this is a feature of dialectic which I th think will become important later in our, in our inquiry. Now, after Aristotle distinguishes the dialectical from the demonstrative syllogism, he discusses the usefulness of this treatise on dialectical reasoning. As we saw before, he gives us three uses for dialectic, intellectual exercise, conversation, and philosophical science. Uh, St. Albert the Great, in his commentary on the topics, brings the first two back to the third. He argues that we study the treatise the topics so that we can exercise our ability to reason about philosophical questions from probable premises. And we then use that ability in conversations 
in order to remove the obstacles in the minds of others to the correct understanding of the philosophical truth. So according to St. Albert, the other two uses find their ultimate rationale in the use of dialectical reasoning in the philosophical sciences. As we saw before, one use in the philosophical sciences is to consider arguments both for and against a conclusion in such a science. For example, Aristotle gives arguments both for and against the existence of void in book four of his physics before he attempts to reach a definitive conclusion. But our concern here is why Aristotle thinks that dialectic is useful for grasping not the conclusions, but the principles of all the sciences. Now, in the topics, Aristotle gives a brief account and it has two parts. In the first part, he explains why we cannot discuss the principles scientifically. And here it makes sense to recall our previous example, Euclid's elements. The propositions in the elements are the conclusions to demonstrative arguments. Since they're conclusions, our knowledge of them relies on our, knowledges, our knowledge of the premises from which they are concluded. Some of those premises are, are themselves conclusions of previous propositions, but ultimately everything depends upon first premises, definitions, postulates, and common notions, which he outlines at the beginning of his first book. Uh, as I say this, I'm thinking, that's not strictly speaking exhaustive. Uh, there are many premises, I th uh, uh, first premises, I think, that come up in the course of the propositions in Euclid that we just he doesn't draw attention to because they're not used as universally as those uh, postulates and uh, common notions. But that, 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 that doesn't really matter for my argument. Uh, so these, all of these, are the first truths of geometry, and no premises are prior to them. Therefore, we cannot use geometrical premises to argue for or against the definitions, postulates, or common notions. And Aristotle concludes universally that it's impossible to prove or discuss the principles of a science from the premises that are proper to that science. But in, in the second part of his account, Aristotle argues that we can use dialectic to reason about the first principles of the philosophical sciences. He points out that we can argue about the principles from what is probable, that is, from what is generally accepted about them. For example, we cannot argue geometrically that all right angles are equal, because the statement is, that statement is a first principle in geometry. But if we need to, we can discuss, the, the, we can discuss that statement from probable statements about angles. But to reason from what is probable is the function of dialectic. Therefore, a treatise on dialectic, such as the topics, should be very useful for the pursuit of the philosophical sciences. And it's at this point that a problem always arises in my mind. The first principles are first principles, so they can't be proven by demonstration. They are, as St. Thomas puts it, per se noda. 
known through themselves. They're, known, they're not known through being deduced by, from some prior premises. Moreover, since they are the source of our knowledge of the conclusion, they're actually more known than any of the conclusions that follow from them. They are known to be true with the greatest certainty, but the premises of dialectical syllogisms are not certain, but merely probable, and their conclusions, like the conclusions of all syllogisms, are no more certain than their premises. And even the combination of many dialectical arguments does not produce the certainty about the conclusion that must belong to something that we're going to know as a first principle. In sum, because the principles are per se nota, they seem not to need any support that would be provided by reasoning to them. And because dialectical reasoning begins from mere probabilities, dialectic seems unable to provide the necessary support. So it seems that dialectical reasoning is entirely useless for coming to know the first principles of the sciences. This problem, I think, brings into focus what we need to look at in the next part of our inquiry. We need to understand what a first principle is, what more precisely it means for something to be per se nota, self-evident, known through itself. And we especially need to see how we come to know these first principles. I will use I'll, I'll use texts from both Aristotle and St. Thomas to help us answer these questions. Uh, first, we're going to look at principle, the principles of the sciences from a logic, the, the self-evident principles of the sciences from a logical point of view, and then look at them from the point of view of higher sciences. Now, uh, Aristotle discusses the first principles at the beginning and end of his treatise, treatise on demonstration of posterior analytics. In the second chapter of the first book, he assigns to them five characteristics. They must be true, first, immediate, better known than and prior to the conclusion, and they, needed to be and they need to be related to the conclusion as cause to effect. He points out that they must be true and known to be true because although we can reach a true conclusion from false premises, we, not, we cannot know a conclusion to be true from false premises. He points out that the, these, these first premises must be first in the sense of being indemonstrable, since if they were demonstrable, they would require demonstration to be known, and thus there would have to be premises prior to them. And because they're indemonstrable, they're immediate. They're not known through a middle term. And because knowledge is because science is knowledge of something through its cause, they must be the cause of the truth of the conclusion prior to and better known than it. So the, this, is a, this is, I think, a, 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 a way to look at the first principles, to look at their logical characteristics. Now, looking at, at St. Thomas, looking at these same principles, perhaps from the perspective of a higher science, 
assigns a different set of characteristics to them. In various places, he notes that the first principles are known naturally, that they're conceded by all, that they're known as soon as their terms are understood, and that they are so certain that no one is able to think the opposite of them. But the characteristic he most often assigns to them, and which to me seems to be the root of the others, is that the predicate of a first principle is in or from the very ratio of its subject. So the next thing I want to do is to consider, consider carefully what St. Thomas means when he says the predicate of the first principle is in or from the very ratio of its subject. Now, St. Thomas tells us the principles are the principles naturally known are infused in the minds of men through the light of the age and intellect. I think we should understand this as working in the following way. The age and intellect makes a potentially intelligible nature contained in the sensible image actually intelligible and understood, present in the intellect which becomes all things. When another nature which is immediately rooted in the first is also understood, and when it's compared to the first nature, by the light of the age and intellect, we see the second nature as coming from the first nature and is in some way being present in that first nature. And we see this without having to use any third nature as a middle connecting the first two. And since we see the second nature as being present in the first nature, we cannot help affirming the statement which joins the two natures, that is, as soon as we understand the terms of that statement. Now, the example St. Thomas often gives of such a first self-evident principle is the axiom that the whole is greater than its part. He points out that to be greater than its part is something that's contained in and flows from the nature of the whole. The intellect, seeing the nature of whole, sees that being greater than the part is immediately in and from that nature. And so the intellect cannot help but predicate the former of the latter, greater, of the, greater, greater than its part of the whole. And consequently, the proposition that the whole is greater than the part is known naturally. It's conceded by all. It's known as soon as the terms are known and is known with such certainty that no one is able to really think the opposite. And so in general, the fact that the nature of the predicate is in some way present in the nature of the subject is at the root of all these features of the self-evident principles of knowledge. Now in another place, St. Thomas points out that the principles are made known to us immediately through sense as opposed, I think, to being made known through a rational investigation. And this fits, of course, the account we have given of their being made known by the light of the age and intellect. But it also brings to mind Aristotle's discussion at the end of the posterior analytics of how we come to know the first principles of demonstration. 
Now, since the posterior analytics teaches logic, it doesn't make sense for Aristotle to invoke there the power of the agent intellect. But even the logician can see three things about the process of coming to know the first principles. First, that man is not born with a knowledge of the first principles. We could not have a more excellent form of knowledge without being aware that we have it. Second, that because all learning comes from pre-existent knowledge, and the only knowledge prior to that of the first principles is sensation, then our knowledge of the first principles must in some way be derived from sensation. Third, because what is sensed is individual, but what is understood is universal, he can also see that the process will have something in common with induction. Now, of course, the problem that Aristotle cannot entirely solve in the posterior analytics is how an inferior form of knowledge sensation can be the or origin of a more excellent form understanding. But his account here does help us to see from another angle what it means for the first principles to be naturally known. It does not mean that the soul possesses knowledge of the first principles from birth or conception. Aristotle is clear that we somehow learn the first principles. What it rather seems to mean is that the natural activity of the intellect, in contrast to deliberate activity of rational investigation, is enough to bring about in our minds knowledge of these principles, knowledge so certain that we are not able to even think the opposite. Now that conclusion seems only to sharpen the problem about the use of dialectic in the philosophical sciences. If the first principles are naturally known by the light of the age and intellect without the investigation of reason, it seems we can't help coming to know them. And if we can't help coming, if we can't fail to learn them, it seems that dialectic, which is a, after all a deliberate method of rational investigation, would always be superfluous for learning them. Dialectic then does not seem like it's going to be a way to the first principles. Now, I think a distinction that St. Thomas and Boethius make between kinds of first principles of science help us solve this problem. St. Thomas defines the per se nota principles of the sciences into two common conceptions of the soul which are known to all and proper principles which are known only to the wise. And what's the difference? As we saw before, everything per se nota, every per se nota principle is known as soon as the terms are known because the predicate is found in the very ratio of the subject. Now, some terms, such as whole and part, are known to all men. And so the per se notice statement that the whole is greater than the part is known to all men is what St. Thomas and Boethius will call a common conception of the soul. But other terms, the terms proper to the particular sciences are not known to all 
but only to those with an experience of the science. I think the term right angle is an example. That term is proper to the science of geometry. And so not everyone understands what a right angle is, but only those who have at least some experience of geometry. So therefore, although the proposition every right angle is equal is a first principle, per se notice, self-evident, it's not known to all men but only to those who understand the nature of its subject, the right angle. Now, what we especially need to take away from this distinction is that in some cases, it's possible for a statement to be per se notice, self-evident in itself, but still to be unknown to some men. And we can also see why this happens. Some men fail to grasp the subject of a per se nota, a self-evident statement. Now, by itself, these assertions might make us think there's room here for dialectical reasoning to help us learn the truth of at least some of the first principles of science. And so perhaps then, maybe we've already answered our original question. But I think, in fact, we still run into a problem on the one hand, if we know the subject of the per se notice statement, then we can immediately grasp the truth of that statement. And so a dialectical argument supporting that statement seems superfluous. On the other hand, if we do not know the subject, we can't even consider the statement at all. And so a dialectical argument supporting it seems impossible. In either case, it seems the dialectic still cannot help us understand the first principles of the sciences. Now, I think that a text that can help us solve this further problem and maybe the key to solving the whole problem is found at the beginning of Aristotle's physics. There, Aristotle concludes that natural science should take up first the consideration of the most universal principles of nature. Okay, now, when I, when I use the word principle, when, when, I, when I talk about principles here, you, most universal principles of nature, uh, this is not necessarily the most universal principles of the science, but perhaps the most universal principles of the subject matter. And so, in what follows, sometimes I'm going to be using the word principle to refer to something, a principle in the thing, and sometimes I'm going to be using the word principle to talk about the principle of a science, those, those first self-evident principles, and I'm going to try to keep those things straight for you. But I just wanted to warn you that the, this is coming up. So St. Thomas writes, or Aristotle writes, sorry, it's necessary to proceed in this way from what is less certain by nature but more, more certain to us toward what is more certain more and more knowable by nature. But the things which are first obvious and certain to us are rather confused, and from these the elements and principles become known later by dividing them. Whence, it is necessary to go from the universals to the particulars. 
Now, what's important about the passage above is the reason that we need to go from the study of the universal to the particular. The confused is more known to us than the distinct. And Aristotle manifests this in two ways, through sensation and intellectual knowledge. He points out that what is first sensed is a confused whole, and only after we have perceived that do we come to a, a, a distinct sensation of the parts. St. Thomas gives in his commentary the example of seeing first the whole house and then the parts of the house. But Aristotle points out that the same progression also happens at the level of intellect. A name indistinctly signifies a whole nature while the definition divides into single parts, that is, distinguishes the principles of that nature. Principles here, the principles of the thing. <coughs> we have to name something before we can state its definition because we understand the na whole nature confusedly first and only after this distinctly understand the principles of that nature. So both in sensation and understanding, we know something first in a confused way and then in a distinct way. And so St. Thomas points out in his commentary, between not knowing a subject and knowing that subject distinctly, there is a third possibility, knowing that subject in a confused way. This means knowing something of the nature of the subject, but not having a distinct grasp of the principles of the nature. Knowing it in this way enables us to name the subject and even to predicate things of it, even to make it a term in a syllogism maybe, maybe but it does not able, enable us necessarily to see the truth of a self-evident statement about it. Even when our knowledge of the nature is confused, however, the principles of the nature of that subject are still in some way present in our conception of it. Perhaps we could say implicitly or virtually or in some, something like that. But, and here's the key point, the principles of the nature are not present in such a way that we can draw out of them the predicate which would immediately flow from them. Here's one example. We might know enough about the right angle at first to name it, but not enough, not see it distinctly enough to see that the equality to all right angles flows from the very ratio of the subject. We might be caught in the middle knowing enough about, the, enough about the right angle to name it, to, underst to, to uh, understand the meaning of the words in a statement about it, but not enough to see that the postulate, all right angles are equal, is immediately true. I think another example of this would be the first definition of the soul, substance as species of a natural body with life potentially. 
before we undertake the study of the soul, we know enough about the soul to name it and to know that it exists. But we don't see its principles distinctly. And so we don't know enough about the subject of the following statement. The soul is a substance as species of a natural body with life potentially. We don't know enough about the subject soul to see that this statement is immediately true. And so before we can come to see the truth of this statement, we'll have to study the soul and reason about it from opinions that all men or wise men share about the soul. That is, the definition of the soul will be made clear through dialectical reasoning. Illichsen, I think, like we've solved all of our problems. I guess not all of our problems, right? <laughs> all of my problems. <laughs> Maybe not all my problems either. <laughs> we now see that it's not impossible, at least in some instances, to be ignorant of the first principles, statements that are self-evidently true. We're ignorant of them when we don't know the nature of the subject of the statement. Also, we've seen that knowing or not knowing a principle is not just a question of knowing or not uh, the subject or not knowing it at all. Rather, there's a middle state, knowing the subject in a confused way. In such a state, we know enough about the subject to be able to name it and to discuss maybe the self-evident statement about it, but not enough to see immediately that the principle is true. All of this leaves room for the operation of dialectic in our, in, the, in our grasp of the principles. So our final task is just to explain how dialectical arguments move our mind from a confused grasp of the subject to a distinct one. I think two factors are present. First, St. Albert points out that the probable statements which we use in dialectical reasoning have the character of signs. And I think, he, I, I, I think what he means by this is that we're naturally inclined to accept these statements because the principles of the nature of the subjects of these statements, and I'm using principles in terms of principles of the things, are implicitly present in our conception of these things. For example, even before we have a definition of the soul, being the soul being a substance is in some imperfect way present even in the confused grasp we have of the soul before we study it. This vague grasp of the nature inclines us to deny that one living thing has many souls. And that denial is a sign of the presence of the principal substance in our vague grasp of the nature of the soul. So our natural assent to the probable statement is a sign of the presence of some principle in the nature of the subject. The second factor is one mentioned much earlier. Dialectic proposes many arguments about the same subject and in support of 
or even in opposition to the same statement. The arguments are many because the probable statements from which they proceed are many and distinct. I remember one morning several years ago discussing with another tutor some first principle in mathematics. And later that afternoon, I received an email with 18 arguments against my position. <laughs> and I thought this was a remarkable display of dialectical power. <coughs> I wasn't necessarily convinced so. If we combine the two factors, that the probable statement is a sign and that dialectic produces many arguments, I think we can see how dialectic can lead to a grasp of a first principle of a science. The subject of the first principle is, in dialectic, the subject of many distinct dialectical argument, arguments, and so of many distinct probable premises. Each of those premises is a sign of the virtual, implicit, imperfect presence of some principle of the subject in our conception of that subject. Therefore, the many distinct probable statements can be the signs of many distinct principles in the essence of the subject. But once we see distinctly the principles in the subject, we see that enables us to see the nature of the subject distinctly and therefore to see that the predicate of a self-evident proposition is already present in that subject in some way. We then immediately predicate it of the subject and affirm the first principle of the science. Thus, the multiplicity of dialectical arguments becomes an important aid in the grasp of the proper first principles of the sciences. At least the first principles known only to the wise. Dialectic then is a way to the principles of all sciences. <clears throat> okay, I'm almost done. Our, uh, this, 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 this subject of inquiry is a, is a difficult one, but I hope at least that the inquiry has made us more aware of the nature of the first principles of the sciences and of what it means to be per se nota or self-evident. I also hope that it's made us aware of how difficult it can be sometimes to grasp those principles and how the dialectical method that we use at this college is a good way to reach them. Finally, I want to point out that the use of dialectic in grasping the principles might go further than I've discussed. I think it, it almost certainly does. In this paper, I've only explored how it might be used to grasp the proper principles of a science. I've left aside the consideration of the common principles, the ones that everyone knows in some way. But I think there's room for the use of dialectic even in these cases. After all, the common principles are also subject to confusion, though of a different kind than the proper principles. It's not so much the confusion of the principles of the subject, but the confusion of the statement in itself with the particulars with which it's almost invariably considered but I've really come to the end of my time, so I'm just putting this forward as a suggestion, and I'm not going any further, and I'm done. Thank you. Thank you.